in both Joseph of the Old Testament and Daniel's case, what did they both say to the rulers for whom they interpreted dreams? There is a God in heaven, and he knows the interpretation thereof. So that when the Pharaoh is contemplating the future, he doesn't say, we want to take you, Joseph, and make you the leader because you're a great man. No, he says, we need to find a man in whom the Spirit of God is. Why? Because Joseph didn't take the credit for interpreting the dream. He said, God interpreted the dream. I am just his messenger. And that's what the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were saying in this passage. So today as we begin, we will turn to Acts chapter 12, verse 18. We will be finishing up Acts chapter 12 today. And um, I've titled this message, Cursed or Blessed? That is the question. And so, let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we count it a great privilege to serve a risen Savior. Where we know when we look at the religions of the world that most of their founders are laying dead and cold in a grave somewhere. But you rolled away the stone. Not so Jesus could get out, for we know that he most likely walked through the stone. But so that we could look in. And as the angel said, he is not here. For he has risen just as he said. And because of that, we know that we serve a promise-keeping God. And as we continue to mine the gold of Acts, we thank you and praise you for your hand in all of this. As Benjamin Franklin said at the founding of our, father, founding of our country, this we know for a certainty that God governs in the affairs of men. And we're thankful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as we are starting this section, I just want to remind us that in the beginning of the chapter, Herod takes James and he kills James the brother of John. And it pleased the Jews so much that he says, okay, I'll take Peter. And I'll put him in prison. And after the Passover, then I will kill him. That was his desire, was to kill Peter at the end of Passover. But God had other plans. And he... He removed Peter from there. He brought Peter out and 
It says that at first Peter thought that he was seeing a vision. He didn't realize that he was really being set free, but then eventually he was, and he came to himself, and he went to the home of John Mark, and he said, I know you've been praying for me, and I'm free. And then we're not sure where Peter went from that point, but we know that this is a time of transition for the church as we transition from the things that God called Peter to do to learning about what God will do through the Apostle Paul. And we will hear from Peter um, one more time in Acts chapter 15 as he is giving, uh, as, he, as he is asserting his, his support for Paul and Paul's credentials. And then we will hear of Paul mentioning Peter in the book of Galatians when Peter separated himself from the Gentiles when his Jewish brethren came around and it says, I withstood Peter to his face because it's important for him to stay in fellowship with his brethren and to not bow to peer pressure. But this is a time of transition. We see Herod is flexing his muscle. This is like the grandson of the Herod that... Uh, tried to kill Jesus, and we all know how that ended up. But my first point is Herod continues his murderous ways. It's evident from this passage that Herod was a very angry man, and he was driven by power, which is exactly the opposite of what Jesus told us to do. He said, the kings of the earth lord it over you. But I say to you, whoever wants to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, let him be a servant of all. He said, I am come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And that's the attitude that he wants his church to have. So let's read the first two verses here, Acts 12, 18, and 19. It says, Now as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers what was become of Peter. And when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judah Judah to Caesarea and there abode. So it's interesting to note here that Herod decides there's no possible way that this could be a supernatural act. So I'm going to place all the blame on the soldiers. So I'm going to kill them for what they've done. We know that he already killed James. So we know that anger is a pattern for this guy. And anger leads to death. Let's look at um, James chapter 1 verse 15. James 1 15. If one of the gentlemen gets to it, if they could stand and read it for us. James 1 verse 15.
finished bringing forth death. And then following that up with Genesis 4, 5 to 8. Genesis 4, 5 to 8. No, five to eight. Go ahead. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, and Abel killed him. His brother Abel killed him. So we see in both of these verses, that the end of anger is death. Perhaps that's why the Apostle John says, how can you say you love God when you hate your brother? Because his master Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount, what? If you hate your brother, it's as bad as what? As bad as murder. And certainly in the case of Cain, it led to murder. Why? Because Cain cho choose, chose not to, but with God's help, rule over his anger. He chose to give in to his anger. He chose to let it rule his life. And as a result of that, he killed his brother Abel. His argument wasn't with Abel. His argument wasn't with Abel. His argument was with God. But Abel was the closest thing that he could get to. Abel was the one to blame. You see that in the first sin in Genesis chapter 3, right? 2. Because what does Adam do when God confronts Adam with his sin? He says, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I did eat. And what does the woman say when Adam says that? She says, the snake in the garden, he told me, that it was okay, and I did eat. And so then God divvies up curses for each of these entities. He says to the snake, you'll crawl on your belly for the rest of your days and eat the dust of the ground. Ever wonder what a snake looked like before the fall? Mm -hmm. I do, because I read that verse. And then he says to the man, you will no longer have uh, ease in harvest, but you will work the ground by the sweat of your brow. You will provide for your family by the sweat of your brow. And then he says to the woman, he says, you will be cursed by having pain in childbirth. And it goes on to talk about how it will affect the relationship of a man with his wife. The devil loves the disintegration of society because he hates people. That's why Jesus said the thief comes not before to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I am come. That they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. But we need to be an example to our fellow believers and to the world of what it means to live in a new and living way. 
And there's definitely other situations that we can talk about where our anger gets the best of us in the Bible and otherwise, but I just wanted to share this observation about Jonah. It says, Jonah is an example of how the character of a good and a great man can be marred by anger and his youthfulness impaired. His story suggests the folly, the danger, and the injury of anger. Unfortunately, when a man feels anger and and gives unrestrained expression to it, as Jonah did, his fellow man is not as patient and long-suffering as God was and does not always return the soft anger which God returned to the anger and penitent Jonah. Anger is one of the most common sins, yet one of the most dangerous and injurious to the peace and well-being of men. More than any other sin, it blasts the flower of friendship, turns men out of Eden, destroys peace and concord in the home, incites to crime and violence, and turns true love and affection into hatred. So this is the situation that we have with Herod. He is an angry man, and he he has hatred in his heart. And so he is causing all kinds of problems. And I feel like this story is a good example of where Paul says, Paul reminds us that that God's vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we're looking at this next section. God curses Herod because of pride. Remember we read in the Proverbs that pride cometh before a fall. So let's look at Acts 12, 20. 23. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon. But they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus the king's chamberlain their friend, desired peace, because their country was nourished by the king's country. So first of all, I want to just mention that there isn't a lot of detail about this conflict with Tyre and Sidon and Herod. All we know is that he had control of a lot of their food supplies. So they're like, we have to make nice with this guy, even though we really don't like him. Because if we don't, we'll die. And then when he talks about making the king's chamberlain a friend, there's an indication of some bribery possibly going on at that point. Point because this is a trusted advisory of the king and one advisor of the king and once again you want to get good in good with him. And upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat down upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shot, saying, "It is the voice of a god and not of a man." And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten with worms and gave up the ghost. This is a sobering reminder to us to give God the glory for what we have. <clears throat> Herod sat upon the throne. He gave an oration to them. You know, we have all heard smooth talkers, people with great ability to speak. But without the intervention and the work of the Holy Spirit, words mean nothing. 
the important words that you hear today are the words that come from the Lord himself. And so the king um, makes this oration and they say, it's the voice of a God and not a man. Now, there's two different interpretations of this, neither of them good. One is that they, they thought of him as that God, that one of their gods had put words in his mouth and they were uh, stroking his ego and saying, that's what we heard. And another interpretation puts it to the point of they honored him as God. Remember in the book of Daniel, they did this to um, the King Darius when they wanted to trip up Daniel. They said, O king, live forever. May it be so that if anyone prays to anyone but you for 30 days, that they be thrown in the den of lions. Why did they say this? Because they knew that the king's ego would acquiesce to this even though he loved and honored Daniel. And we know that he tried so many times and ways to get Daniel out of going to the lion's den, but he couldn't find a way because he had made a permanent decision based on temporary good feelings. Not realizing the cost. And he laid awake all night hoping that Daniel would be okay. And Daniel said, the Lord has... Preserve me from the mouth of the lion. So God was in control in that situation. And then we see that God's vengeance on King Herod is swift. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Now, it's interesting here that the writer of Acts is Dr. Luke. So he's giving us this detail. He's like, he didn't just pass out dead. He died an excruciating death. Um, and that, it, that it, it was no doubt a painful death. And Luke is highlighting that detail. That God intervened and had vengeance on Herod. And Herod gave up the ghost. What a wonderful thing it is to know that we have a God who knows what he's doing and he will intervene on our behalf. <clears throat> Could we look at... Uh, Can we look at Acts chapter 14, verses 11 to 15? Acts 14, 11 to 15. saying in a speech of Lycaonia, 
the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Vicarious because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people. Which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passion with you, and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. See the contrast here between Paul and Barnabas and King Herod? Paul and Barnabas were doing great things and, and the people wanted to honor them as gods. They said, these are our ancient gods. Come to life in personal form. And Paul says, we are not gods. We, we are men like you. We are imperfect like you. But there is a living God and he's the one that you should turn to and serve. You see, when we do accomplish something worthwhile, it is not the opportunity for us to take a bunch of credit. It is the opportunity to say, the reason this happened is because I serve a living Savior. In both Joseph of the Old Testament and Daniel's case, what did they both say? to the rulers for whom they interpreted dreams. There is a God in heaven, and He knows the interpretation thereof. So that when the Pharaoh is contemplating the future, he doesn't say, we want to take you, Joseph, and make you the leader because you're a great man. No. He says we need to find a man in whom the Spirit of God is. Why? Because Joseph didn't take the credit for interpreting the dream. He said God interpreted the dream. I am just his messenger. And that's what the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were saying in this passage. We also look at Psalm 115.1. Psalm 115.1. It's interesting, isn't it? When we think about the good things that we have, when the psalmist asks God to do good unto him, what does he do it on the basis of? He constantly reminds God of his character. Because as the Apostle Paul said, in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. Peter, uh, Jesus said to the rich young ruler, there's no one on earth that is good 
save one. And that is God. Quite an interesting story, isn't it? He doesn't say, I'm not a good teacher. He says, by acknowledging that I'm a good teacher, you are saying that I'm God. Some of us are so full of ourselves as a writer in the Canadian Baptist and are busy serving that we cannot see Christ in all his beauty. Some years ago, while I was away on a preaching appointment, my wife and little daughter stayed at the home of a friend. On the bedroom wall, just over the head of the bed in which they slept, there was a picture of the Lord Jesus, which was reflected in a large mirror of the dressing table, standing in the bay of the bedroom window. When my little girl woke on her first morning there, she saw the picture reflected in the mirror while she lay in bed and exclaimed, Oh, Mommy, I can see Jesus through the mirror. Then she quickly kneeled up to take a better look, but in doing so, brought her own body between the picture and the mirror, so that instead of seeing the picture of Jesus reflected, she now saw herself. So she lay down again, and again saw the picture of Jesus. She was up and down several times after that with her eyes fixed on the mirror. Then she said, Mommy, when I can't see myself, I can see Jesus. But every time I see myself, I don't see him. How true it is that when self fills the vision, we do not see Jesus. Okay, so the third point is God blesses the church and growth continues. You notice with all these horrible things that have happened to the church, there's always growth that results. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses through the ends of the earth. And they were in their local area in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And he caused persecution and he sent them scattered by persecution to spread the gospel. Verse 24 of Acts chapter 12 says, But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Remember, in the end of chapter 11, we saw that Barnabas was charged with bringing this money to the people that needed it. And he went and got his brother Saul, said Saul is good for this mission. And they went together and they did it. And now they're saying they fulfilled their mission and they came back to the church in Jerusalem. And the word of God grew and multiplied. How many times in history has the devil tried to kill the word of God? We think of William Tyndale, whose mission was to translate the Bible into English so that even the plowboy could understand the redemption found in Jesus Christ. 
And the priests of that day were very much like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They didn't want to get the power taken away from them. They didn't want the people to believe that they could have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so guess what happened to William Tyndale? He was burned at the stake. And among his last words were these, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. And it wasn't too long after the death of William Tyndale that the King James Version was authorized and people have debated through the years what the motivation was. But whatever the motivation, it's been a great source of comfort and and a vehicle for truth throughout the centuries. The, the people thought they're going to crush the way, the followers of the way by crucifying Jesus. They're like, we'll, we'll, we'll crucify Jesus. We'll kill him. Nobody will ever talk about him again. He'll just die out like so many other leaders. And yet he rose again on the third day. And appeared to over 500 people at once. And so they went wherever they could, spreading the word of a risen Savior. If you notice, in the book of Acts, they never, no Pharisees come out against the resurrection. They say, we don't want you to speak in Jesus' name. They say, stop preaching the gospel. But they never come out against the resurrection. I believe that there were some of those who are in hell today who intellectually ascended to the resurrection. And what do I mean by that? Because in the end of Matthew we read that they gave the guards money and secured their place with Pilate and said this, Get your story straight. Tell them that the disciples came in the night and stole the body, and we will make you secure. There would have been no need for that bribe if they actually believed it. They didn't actually believe it, and the guards knew that something supernatural had occurred, but the leaders were more Concerned about their own popularity than about the wonderful life-changing truth of the resurrection. Why? Because the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But to them that believe it is the power of God. Those are the two choices. There is no middle of the road. There is no fence in the kingdom of heaven. So we all need to ask ourselves, do we want to be cursed to eternal damnation or do we want to be blessed with an eternity in heaven? Those are the choices. Second Thessalonians 3.1 Second Thessalonians 3.1 They prayed 
for boldness. I think that's one of the things that I really appreciate about the apostles. You know, when Peter and John were were captured by the Sanhedrin and put in jail and beaten and punished severely for preaching Christ, they came back and they didn't say, well, let's hide out for a few more weeks. Let's let this blow over and and, and we'll see how it goes from there. No, they, they prayed for more boldness and they rejoiced as Jesus told them to that they were counted worthy to suffer for him. I, I hope and pray that that will be our mindset. Our culture is becoming more and more adverse to the things of God. But I pray every day that I will have the grace that if it comes down to it, that I will be able to say whatever is put against me, that I stake my life on the fact that he is risen and that I will never recant such a wonderful message. But I can only say that by his grace because without him, I'm a weak man. Proverbs 28, 28. Proverbs 28, 28. When the wicked people hide themselves, when they perish, the righteous increase. So what happens? Herod perishes, and the word of God grew and multiplied. God tells us in Isaiah that the word of God will not return unto him void, but will accomplish that which he has set it forth to do. Isn't it exciting to know that when he prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, he immediately began to answer that question. That plea of Jesus. God immediately began to answer that plea of Jesus. Why? Because the two thieves that were, that were on either side of him, they were both mocking him. Matthew tells us they were both casting the same in his teeth. But at some point, one of the thieves turned to him and said, Remember me. I know you've done nothing wrong. But I've received the due reward of my deeds. I'm here because I deserve to be here. And then he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said this, verily, verily, I say unto you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's one answer. The other answer is when the centurion, who had just witnessed Jesus being nailed to the cross, When he realized that Jesus was already dead. I think at that point he realized that Jesus was very much in control of the situation. More so than he could have imagined. Because they had to break the legs of the thieves. To get them to die so they could take them off the cross. But Jesus was already dead. Why? Because he had already said, Father into thy hands I commit my spirit. And then he gave up the ghost. And the centurion said, surely this was... The Son of God. So twice, on the very day that he died, 
God is beginning to answer that question. And we know that God's word will always accomplish what it is that he has for it to accomplish. God moves the king's heart. It's in his hands. Our job is to stand firm. But maybe you're on shaky ground today. Maybe you don't have a firm foundation. May I encourage you to trust Jesus? You see, the power of this chapter, the growth of the church in the midst of persecution was because of this. That the followers of Jesus were praying not to a relic who has no eyes to see, no ears to hear with, but to a living God who governs in the affairs of men. The Bible says that the eyes of the Lord go throughout the whole earth seeking those who fear him. And that is why, despite the persecution, the final verse, or the, the final part of this chapter says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. I hope and pray that you have experienced the power of the Lord in your own life. Paul said it this way, in Him we live and move and have our being. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. But He also says, Paul also says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whatever God puts in your path, you can do because He will give you strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth to us. We thank you for its relevance to us, Lord. We know that no matter what evil rulers are placed above us, Lord, that you are in control. We know that you are good. We know that you love us. And we know that your will will always be done. Think of Jesus in the garden when he said, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. We are so thankful that he allowed your will to be carried out, that he allowed himself to be beaten, that he allowed himself to become sin for us, that he allowed himself to be separated from you so that we never would have to. Thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name.